desire. It's the one thing that makes the world go round. At least that's what culture tells us. But like the chorus we all know too well from the timeless eurythmic song, Sweet Dreams, desire is a never-ending cycle of using and being used. As morbid as this may sound, grant me the benefit of the doubt here to explain what I mean exactly, because the point of this will be very well worth it. But first, a little story, maybe even two. For over 15 years, I experienced a level of desire that not too many people get the chance to experience. I was a professional athlete, meaning I made money off of competing and teaching at a professional level in my sport. My sport was ballroom dancing, which until things like Dancing with the Stars came out, most people had never even heard of, let alone considered a sport. Yet, as anybody will testify, ballroom dancing is an incredibly difficult sport. It's high intensity, highly technical, and absolutely brutal in competition because it is ultimately subjective. It is also very political because most of the judges are coaches and owners of the very events that people go to compete at. As a professional, you do not receive sponsorships from big name brands like in other sports because the dance world is pretty much a closed off reality in its own little circuit. Rather, you get costuming benefits from various designers, which, let's be honest, ultimately amount to nothing because last I checked, you couldn't eat rhinestones and glitter. On top of all this, you have the slave system that most teachers are caught up in through the franchise model. The big names like Fred Astaire and Arthur Murray and studios copying these models will import foreign talent on special visas, pay them $25 or so while they charge $120 or more for their time and basically pocket the difference. The high sales quotas that these studio models thrive on lead to one of several predictable outcomes for most professionals. The first outcome is that they get burned out and quit, trying to make it on their own. This is often suicide for their career because the studios cover their bases with ridiculous non-compete contracts, or simply by importing talent on a visa that depends on keeping their relationship with the studio in good standing. In other words, no studio, nor more living in the United States. If the pro happens to get out of this predicament for whatever reason, trying to build a clientele on their own is extremely difficult. This also leads to burnout and ultimately what it all boils down to is choosing to make money and having a living over choosing to be a professional and pursue your competitive dance dreams. Unless they have a trust fund, this is the inevitable fate for most talented professionals. In the competitive world, there are guys who make enough to buy a Mercedes in a weekend by simply dancing with four of their ultra-wealthy students hundreds of times at events and therefore getting kickbacks from every entry that they enter. But as a serious pro trying to compete and rank yourself, this is hardly ever possible because dancing hundreds of times and preparing lots of students is basically in direct conflict with your life as a professional. As a result, the reality of professional life in this industry is one of late nights, constant adaptation, dealing and recovering from burnout, pushing beyond your physical and mental and emotional and spiritual thresholds, and constantly finding yourself evaluating a simple question. Why am I doing this? I've now given you all of this context for a very important reason, because I have another short little story before I get to the point, so please bear with me. Many years ago when I was young and naive, 
I got hired to be part of a dance production. Long story short, it was a big scam. The choreographer paid us an amount that was probably less than minimum wage for all of the hours that we put in, only to run away with the videos that they filmed to Vegas or elsewhere and sell the choreography to other performance venues. We had been promised regular performances for $500 a night, which at the time was a fortune, and in the end I got something better, a life lesson which I'm about to share with you now many years later. During one of the breaks of this dance show, I meandered into an adjacent room nearby. The rehearsals and taping of these shows were actually at an old salsa club, one that I used to love going to, and in an adjacent room there was a bar. At this bar there was this curious little game, and it's in observing this machine that I realized a profound lesson on desire and reality as a whole. That life lesson didn't really settle in until many years later as I ran the rat race of professional competition and began seeing what I clearly see now. I don't recall if this game had a name or not, but I'm just going to call it the lobster game. Basically, it was like any of those games where you put in a few quarters and manipulate a mechanical arm to try to get something from the bin, but there was a catch. Most of the time these games are stocked with toys, and even then we know it's at least a little bit rigged. But this? Catching a lobster in water with a slow mechanical grabber? Yeah, right. And yet it was the most popular game in the bar. They probably had to clean that sucker out of quarters twice a day. It was pretty entertaining to watch because a lobster in water is practically uncatchable, let alone by some clumsy telegraphing robotic claw. It was absolutely ridiculous, and yet it is this fascinating ridiculous moment that God used with perfect timing to reveal to me a very powerful truth. At the time, I didn't realize what the lesson of the lobster game was, but as I grew as a professional and struggled with maintaining my desire in the face of all that I revealed to you earlier, I began to think about this old memory. Coaching students also helped, especially when I was contracted to do things like prepare first-time dancers for massive galas like the Arizona Kidney Foundation's Dancing with the Stars fundraiser. These events were six-plus-month engagements of training someone who basically had never danced before in their life to shake all that they had half-naked in front of everyone that they knew in the hopes of raising the most money that night. No pressure, right? I did dozens of these types of events, and I can tell you that every single time they turned out the same. What I mean here is that prior to the performance, there were nerves, resistance, and eventually excitement. All of these emotions, all this internal struggle, and then gone. A minute and a half feels like an eternity when you're trying to perfect it over the course of many months. And yet, when it's showtime, it disappears like dust in the wind. Universally in these situations, my students always realize the preciousness of the practice. I can't believe it's finally over, they would say. Yeah, I know. I've been there many times. Suffice it to say that these moments, when the truth of how transient life is, were all very great moments of learning and teaching. And often, they led to some of the best students because they wanted more and more. So, what do all these things have in common? This world is built on desire, but desire is an illusion. It only functions so long as you do not have what you want. Think about it. Chasing something new feels exciting, doesn't it? At least at first. 
But then if you get it, you are no longer motivated. Some people respond to this by always finding something new to chase, like a drug addiction, while others take the quote high road and try to find goals that are increasingly harder to achieve, like the personal growth movement, which I was very much part of for many years. Ironically, these two have something in common in that they become an addiction and snare you to the world in one way or another. There is a third way that people deal with the transient nature of desire, and that is they try to undo its programming altogether through the pursuit of non-dualism and meaninglessness. This is basically Buddha's response, because in fact Buddha was right about the futility of desire in what he observed. It's an endless trap, and fundamentally it is flawed because once desire is fulfilled, it loses all of its benefits. And yet, while it is not fulfilled, it sucks everything out of you. Desire is a paradoxical love-hate ping-pong match in your soul, and it leads to physical, emotional, and spiritual burnout. But where Buddha, the personal growth gurus, and the worldly hedonists all get it wrong is actually the same. After studying this problem in my own life and the life of others for many years, And now, having come to Christ and seen the truth of the gospel, I can tell you that desire is actually not the issue. It's where we anchor that desire that really matters. God created every human being in his image, and part of imaging the creator was to have emotions, thoughts, and desires. Desire in and of itself is not evil. God has desires, and so do we. Yet we all know, without having to read the Bible, that the way most people choose to fulfill their desires today and throughout history is not in alignment with what God wants. But why? The answer is the world has convinced you to anchor your desires in it rather than in God. In this respect, Buddha is right. Desire, so long as it is anchored in the world, is futile. The world changes and is fundamentally out of your control. Therefore, what this means is that you have no control over actually fulfilling your desire. Do you see the problem? This is why, without exception, if you stick long enough with something, you will run into a wall that makes you question why you are doing what you're doing. This wall hits you at different times and at different levels depending on what you're doing. Sometimes it's a test and sometimes it is a genuine sign to quit. Prayer and discernment is the key to realizing the difference between these two. Nevertheless, desire so long as it is worldly can never lead you to true happiness. Instead, it leads you to momentum. Think about this one more time. There is a great deal of difference between being fulfilled and just having momentum. Just like there's a big difference between truly dancing and moving around. Desire must therefore be anchored in something unchanging, perfect, and ultimately completely fulfilling. Because God created us to image him and be in a relationship with him, the answer that the Bible gives us to this timeless problem is that desire must be grounded in and pointed at God. The Bible says that God made us for his glory. That's in Isaiah 43, verses 6 through 7. And also that he redeemed us also for his glory in Ephesians 1, verse 14. When you glorify something or praise it, It is ultimately because you find fulfillment and joy in it. When your desire is so satisfied, so absolutely fulfilled, the completion of this experience is to share it with others, is it not? Whether it's a good restaurant, a good movie, or a good post on Facebook that you may have read, 
If something touched you in the right way, it is built into your DNA to share that experience with others. With all this in mind, our greatest joy and fulfillment is also what glorifies God the most. When we delight in Him, then we are also glorifying Him and fulfilling our purpose because praise cannot help but leave our mouths and fellowship with others is unavoidable and organic. I have lost some friends as a result of my pursuit of Jesus Christ, and yet how many more have I gained because of Him, just as He testifies in Mark 10, verse 30. I want you to understand that God's glory and our fulfillment are actually two sides of the same coin. And that's why the Bible answers the problem of desire through the gospel. By abandoning this dying world and its false light, we begin to see what really matters. Jesus said that he is the bread of life because only he can feed our needs, while also providing a never-ending journey of discovery, challenge, beauty, and growth. Jesus does not change, and he is the source of all life. While the world is constantly changing, and fundamentally it's ruled by death, There is nothing wrong with having desires, goals, and things that you want to achieve. However, the great illusion is that we do not need a relationship with God to fulfill our desires. This lie is as old as time, and when we can return to a proper alignment with our Creator, everything falls back into perspective. I was a type A person, and I still am, all of my life, and I made a living off of pushing my boundaries and the boundaries of my students and clients, making plans, being organized, and all kinds of these similar things. Yet today, I just try to take it one day at a time. I really do. I have loose plans, but I balance those plans with the truth that I am not really in control of anything significant in my life, and that God's plans are always much, much better. There is much to learn, but having a desire to pursue His face and share the truth with others has been more fulfilling than anything else I've experienced in my life thus far by a long shot. So wherever you are in your own rat race, I can relate. Some races need to be run, but do not forget the truth. This world is dying, and it will be judged. It profits nothing a man to gain the world but lose his soul. And eternity is a very long time to do much more than you can possibly do here in just a few decades. The things that truly count are prayer, presence, faith, love, listening, and compassion to others. And remember this, in the dance of life, it is not the moves that you do, but rather whether you are in alignment with the music that truly matters. We know that God is the glorious DJ of this dance, but he is also our partner. And when we learn to follow, that is when our desire will take on a whole new level of meaning.